I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And And welcome welcome to to School of Movies. Murder on the Orient Express. You know, there is something about that tangle of strangers pressed together for days with nothing in common but the need to go from one place to another and never see each other again. I see evil on this train. A passenger has died. So they got him after all. You assume he was killed? No, 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 not. Well, he was in perfectly good health. He he had his enemies. Indeed, he was murdered. God, murder here. God rest his soul. Someone was rummaging around my cabin in the middle of the night. No one would listen to me. What is going on? If there was a murder, then there was a murderer. The murderer is with us. And every one of you is a suspect. And who are you? My name is Hercule Poirot, and I am probably the greatest detective in the world. This is a commissioned show for Greg Downing and Toby Jungius. With us once more, we have the great pleasure of welcoming back Victoria Luna B. Grieve. Thank you for having me to unravel this mystery as the as the the, the dame who enters the room that that you know brought trouble with her. <laughs> Do you have a shifty-eyed dog as well? Just a little lap dog, little thing there. No, but I have a very fluffy cat, a very okay. white, pure, fluffy cat. Who drools a little bit. You are skewing towards Bond villainess here. (laughs) 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 On this film's release in 2017, a lot of critics delivered sniffy or dismissive reviews, effectively amounting to, what is the point of this film existing? The book, an exceptionally well-crafted potboiler by Agatha Christie, was released in 1934 and has been translated into countless languages and has been beloved and avidly read across the world for the nearly 90 years since. There exists a very well-received 1974 adaptation for the big screen, directed by Sidney Lumet and starring Albert Finney as Hercule Poirot, also featuring Sean Connery, Ingrid Bergman, Sir John Gielgud, Vanessa Redgrave, Michael York, Jacqueline Bissett and Anthony Perkins. There is also the matter of the long-running ITV series of 50-minute episodes based on the mysteries of Agatha Christie's most famous detective. They're played by David Suchet. This ran for 70 episodes from 1989 to 2013. Orient Express was somehow saved until 2010, which is exceptional patience for the long-running and deeply beloved show. So what is the point of this film existing? I would posit that despite the millions and millions of copies of Christie's books sold over the last century, billions, I believe, her grandson said, not 
everyone is going to be able to pick them up and enjoy them without good reason to. Not everyone's storytelling comfort zone is literature. Not everyone is going to track down a 24-year spanning British TV show and decide to really get to grips with it. And with the best will in the world, a nearly 50-year-old film is going to be a hard sell for contemporary audiences. Editorial side note, after having recorded this episode, Sharon and I went back and rented the original Murder on the Orient Express film by Sidney Lumet. It's fine. It felt a little cramped because they were filming inside a train. I was taken aback by how aggressive Poirot was in that one and how unkind. It also tips its hand regards motivating tragic incident at the very beginning as opposed to the beginning of Act 2 in the new film. But as we watched it with Willow, all Willow could do was say, oh, I get that that's Daisy Ridley. Oh, I get that that's Judi Dench. But they frankly couldn't wait for it to be over and wanted to see the Branagh version again immediately afterwards. There is a need for stories like this to be retold. It is a need further bolstered by the prospect of these roles being impeccably acted on the big screen. Director and star Kenneth Branagh loves working in film and deliberately selected 65mm stock, which allows for astonishing detail and epic scope, when he could quite easily have just gone digital. There is a meticulousness about this production which mirrors its protagonist, a playful urgency in the momentum, and a handling of tone which steers itself from sprightly humour to deep heartache without spilling a drop. In other words, there was an imbalance, and then this film existed to right that wrong. Currently, we are awaiting the follow-up, Death on the Nile, delayed by disease and disorder. In the meantime, we can all step back and inspect this masterful handling of a tale often retold and, frankly, rather important to take in. I would truly suggest seeing this film first before you listen to our show so that it can reveal itself to you. If you are unable, then the book or the 74 movie or the TV version will also be fine. I would not call the reveal of the murderer to be a spoiler. It is the specificity of what lies beneath that fact that changes the nature of the entire story, a twist that changes your perspective on the entire affair. Therefore, it will be of great benefit to take in the whole story before we examine it in greater detail. We will hold that back for a post-reveal section and tell you when that will be, along with a musical break, which allows us to at least whet the appetite of those of you folks who haven't yet seen this version of the film by describing the pre-murder setup. So, we'll be talking about the train and Poirot himself, the beginnings, and then we'll kind of get to the person who's going to be murdered, and after that... I don't even want to say spoilerific. It's... We're not... We don't spoil movies. <laughs> By and large, we, we try to make movies better. This is a, a case of... I actually knew who the murderer was going in because it was told to me in the lyrics of a song. And that didn't spoil the movie. But I do feel that if you can find out for yourself, that will, that will be a ride. 
that is worth taking. So in short, ideally see it, but if you aren't immediately able to and would like to know about the story and setup before we get to the spoiler sections, which we will flag, then keep listening. But bear in mind, I went in knowing who the murderer was, and I had an amazing time. So, Hercule Poirot is portrayed as being fixated on balance. He is able to detect something off about the world as plain as the nose on a face. It is good for detecting crime, but it makes most things unbearable. Uh, I think Bob Chipman described this as a Marvel film in that he has a superpower in this. And it does have that kind of energy to it. I can, I can completely understand where, where he's coming from when he said that. In Hercule's own words, he has reached an age where what he loves, he does so intensely. What he dislikes, he cannot abide. A ponderous and lonely existence, trying to grab the best things with both hands whilst retreating from the detestable. This is a man who knows who he is. He is aware of his eccentricities and he knows where he stands morally, socially, intellectually. It is common practice to make famous fictional detectives neurodivergent or neuroatypical, living with mindsets and mental makeups which set them apart from the regular crowd. And many, many people on the spectrum, or living with these challenges every day, find this tendency to be irritating, unbalanced, focusing on all the gifts and few of the penalties. And there are plenty of sloppy and shoddily penned versions of these. A surfeit of ingenuine performances or obnoxious stereotypes. A lot of people consider Sherlock Holmes in a lot of his incarnations to be too obnoxious, so very blunt and very rude. But when it is done very well, as it is, I believe, here, seeing someone performed with the kind of mind that cannot settle, that will catch and trip on details, who cannot quieten their brains, but who uses that fact to go about what they do, harnessing their own discomfort, the prickling at their sensibilities to achieve something. And while I can't claim to have anything like the brilliant mind of this great and respected detective, I nonetheless find it unusually comforting to see something like this. I find kinship. I find the very peace that Poirot is seeking. A lot of the descriptions of Hercule, Hercule Poirot... Hercule, I do not Hercule. fight the lions. I, I love that lion. He, <laughs> he is so witty in this movie. Anyway, uh, while we were watching this i watched this last night with uh my partners and um i know that he is described as having ocd in a lot of places but it's in that like hollywood obsessive compulsive disorder where mm. it's just like kind of cute but not actually representative of the real the real disorder and uh my one partner pointed out he has a lot of autistic traits in mm. the way that he's being displayed in this movie and it's it's much more like you said someone on the spectrum than uh how people normally associate kind of hollywood ocd which is that hollywood ocd is really really 
prevalent in detectives because um, even in on TV you had like Monk, mm-hmm. which I, I know was Monk. Yeah, well, that's that's the only time I've seen it depicted in a way that was actually OCD and not uh, just an individual who is neurodivergent in some kind of way. Um, and weirdly enough, I have seen two whole episodes of the old Poirot show that you mentioned. David, my parents, my parents were a were big fans of it and caught a couple Sharon's of dad bought the entire DVD box set that just dominated a whole shelf. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I should get that for my parents. <laughs> it's um, very good. It's very parents friendly. Very much so. But that was my only experience with, with Poirot before this. I hadn't, unlike you, I had no idea who the murderer was going into this movie. Mm. Oh, that's good. Sharon, uh, any, any uh, thoughts on Poirot in, in particular? and, and his, um, uh... I think uh, in this particular context, Victoria makes a very good point about the, uh, the sort of OCD portrayal. I would say that it's worth bearing in mind that a lot of uh, neurodivergent behaviours are misdiagnosed initially as OCD or something adjacent to OCD because of a tendency, uh, particularly historically, to look at somebody's behaviour without analysing their motivations. They, they, you know, there's a, there's a bit of a, and I think this is what Hollywood has a tendency to do because it's looking at people from the outside. It will um, sometimes put a label on what they do without really going into why. And... This was one of the things that I really appreciated about Branner's performance is that he drops enough hints and implications without making it all about him explaining why he works the way he does to just give you a little bit of insight into what moves him in that direction. So there's a a tiny little bit, it's actually right at the end of the film, where he asks somebody to straighten their tie and that in a certain context could come off as he's being very prissy and he's being very kind of upper class and he is speaking to somebody who's of a a lower social stature to him and it could be seen as imperious but for him it's just the fact that something's off centre and he needs it to be recentered. It's a reprisal of uh, he uh, he asks the um, guy who's talking to him at the beginning to straighten his tie after describing his mind. Yeah. Yeah, and I think the the opening with that summation of um, that you quoted there, Alex, that uh, I can only see the world as it should be, and when it's not, the imperfection stands out like the nose in the middle of a face. That's it's it's not his concept of balance is not as simple as everything's got to be symmetrical, but it is that everything has a place and a way it should be. And it makes him feel very uncomfortable and unsettled when he can perceive that it's not. Although they do go out of their way to make it feel like everything needs to be symmetrical in that the first two things that you see him do is measuring eggs. Mm -hmm. Uh, He gets given two boiled eggs that they have endeavoured to make as close to the same size as each other as well, to, to find two as close to the same size as each other. Um, and again, with the uh, Hollywood OCD, rather than going, they're the wrong size, fuck off, um, <laughs> and being really off-putting, uh, which obviously doesn't necessarily affect everyone with OCD, mm-hmm. but um, if you suffer from OCD, you could come off as off-putting to people. He basically gives the kid who bought him the eggs a little wink and says, these eggs are for you. Yeah. And then, 
goes and steps in a pile of shit and then decides he's going to put his other foot, his clean foot, in that same pile of shit to balance things. Mm, yeah, but there is a parallel with that later on, which is when they're laying the table in the buffet car on the train, the waiter has a little device that he uses to make sure that everything is perfectly lined up. So really, what uh, Poirot is is enacting is not, it's not in and of itself weird. Mm-hmm. It's the context and the reasons that he um, exhibits those quirks that are then made into kind of this fascinating element of his character. The Orient Express itself, and here we can talk about the luxury element of it as we are uh, seeing it, uh, is a character. And the measuring of everything for the silver service, and I think this goes beyond silver service to straight up platinum service, uh, which is effectively suggesting... Everything on this train is as it should be. So the moment something is not as it should be, this will become apparent. So it it gets the audience to sit up, take notice, firstly drinking in the astonishing grandeur that is around you. It starts off in Istanbul with this. Uh, it was originally, it was filmed in Malta, but they, they really just convey this almost Indiana Jones level of... Um, exotic travel from this era and um you you get the the appreciation of luxury because hercule is on vacation he's on holiday he is trying to escape from being asked to be a great detective and solve all these kinds of murders he is trying to not be a detective at this point he is trying to enjoy some freshly baked bread but as he has outlined himself and and does give him sort of this slight edge of melancholy he can't get away from it yeah there is um uh, an, an order to the world that he is compelled to bring back i think that's the way uh Brenner phrased it on the um the commentary and the fact that he has made his work the pursuit of truth means that ultimately that need for truth will pursue him. He'll see it wherever mm. it pops up, and it pops up everywhere. Uh, I think he also said um, that Hercule is on a moral vacation. Not that he is indulging in amorality, mm. but he is trying to be in a place where he is not asked to look yeah. at morality. Yeah. Indeed. He's trying to close his eyes to that injustice, not because he there's, there's anything bad about him, but he's just so burned out by mm. it at the moment. So naturally the film begins with him being asked to solve a crime. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it starts with the cold open with the crime at the Wailing Wall. He gets a telegram... <laughs> He goes, well, he goes, he gets a telegram to go do a completely different crime that just must have sorted do crime? out somewhere <laughs> along the way. That's where he meets Book, then has the new crime on the train and then gets off the train at the end to be told to go do another, to go and solve another fourth crime. Mm. It's ridiculous how many people can apparently find this man anywhere in the world and yeah. bother him. It's basically a hard day's night and he's seated most of the time. <laughs> Um, the initial crime that he's I love that with. Sharon's got more meticulous she just picked up a piece of fluff from the uh, desk and blew it away <laughs> but she Sorry, in such a kind of a it was a okay way. it was a black hair on a white keyboard it kept attracting my attention I had like, to get rid of it 
imperfection. Um, <laughs> you were simply balancing it. <laughs> yeah. The uh, the that cold open at the Wailing Wall um, sets up a theme which I am not sure I want to talk about just yet because it it's apparently pervasive yeah. in Agatha Christie's work more generally and I don't want to give away too much about her other stories potentially. Don't give away her other stories. No, no, no. We want people to but it's, it's go to exploring. Do, it's to do with the theming of who the offenders tend to turn out to be. No, don't talk about that. <laughs> Serious. Don't, don't basically discuss things that lay bare and make more obvious the workings of Agatha Christie. I think we owe her that mystery. Okay. All right, I will retract all of that then and Thank you. not talk about it. That's what we, will, we shall try ourselves, folks. Yes. Uh, Victoria? That's just funny because I, I was going to make a point about things in this movie that I feel like you were just going to make and I can't now because it was a larger... <laughs> it, I may accidentally be spoiling things I've never experienced. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's um, what I thought because I haven't read uh, much of her work, so I, I'm... Ah, but oh. then we get through unwittingly. Yes. <laughs> all, all I was going to say is... Several times in my notes throughout this movie, I'm like, wow, this movie's really pointing out that, like, cops are bad because the people that he tells to change to fix their ties are all cops. Mm -hmm. The the cold open, the the guy who did it was the cop. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like, they keep making references to, well, we're just going to turn everybody over to the police at this point and they're going to be racist and and pin it on either of these two people. Mm -hmm. And it's just the whole time I'm like, it really is drawing a line between the kind of mess of state-led police work, state-led violence, and this the the true seeker of justice in Poirot who actually cares enough to find the truth as opposed to just – like there's a big difference between just solving the crime and – solving the mystery perhaps Poirot seems to be unusually especially for the time aware of structural injustice which most definitely plays into the final thesis of the film structural injustice um and it it allows Poirot himself to have an arc in this film which is difficult with a detective that you're going to... This is why I haven't. I, I decided when I was going to sit down and start writing a book series, I was not going to just have one character that I kept going back to over and over again because how do you keep finding new things for that one character to do? That's why I made it a world, which is possibly one of the reasons why it's difficult to sell my books because you're asking people to invest in a world rather than a character that they individually find appealing. But that's an incredible challenge to keep writing this one guy over and over again. And Christie herself uh, expressed some consternation, but not dislike for Poirot. She referred to him as um, uh, an arrogant little creep at one point and was uh, uh, ultimately any very famous, very popular author is going to be asked to do the same thing repeatedly. The same way that... um, 
what did we do? Uh, the uh, L. Frank Baum we talked about with The Wizard of Oz. He really wanted to write outside of The Wizard of Oz books, and it was like, nah, write more stuff for Oz. And similarly, oh, you know what? L. Frank Baum managed to write uh, someone other than Dorothy, so, you know, it <laughs> can be done. True. But yeah, or the musician that gets um, called upon to play the same track. Streets of London! Thank you. Okay, uh, I'd like to uh, I'd, I'd like to uh, try a new song now. This one uh, is one that Street I'm. Streets of sh- London. Well, <laughs> I just done that one. So this is a new song which Street I'm sure. Sh- no, I've just done that one. Just finished doing it. So this is a new song which I'm sure. You'll all enjoy, and this one's called... Streets of London! No, this, song, uh, this song's called The Highwayman. What? Oh, the man came calling, came calling at my door. Saw my ragged family, saw that we were poor. I said, come and ride with me. The point of systemic imbalance is definitely here in terms of race. This is a really racially diverse film with this amazing star-studded cast. But race is not just there in the background. It is fairly constantly mentioned. As in, there are characters who in the 1930s are challenged on their thoughts on race and sometimes come across as colossal bigots. Mm. It's woven into the uh, the social fabric as well, the social structure. Yeah. Um, the fact that the the characters who are not white are either a lower social class than the people who have paid to be on the train, or if they're not, if they are at least adjacent to the uh, the more upper class characters, there's. There's questions mm. about why. How are they here? There's uh, because there's a, a an upstairs downstairs mm. feel to it, which goes yeah. with a lot of the uh, um, the this era, especially uh, revolving around um, British and British overseas stories, uh, has that class distinction. That's where you get your downtown abbeys and uh, your upstairs, downstairs, your Gosford Parks, your Mary Poppinses and your remains of the Daisies. Bridgerton? Bridget- Is that Bridget- a com- current one? I, I, don't I don't know. I don't I don't know, but I really kind of want to see downtown Abbey. Like, <laughs> like, oh, we could do it here in Pittsburgh. It'd be the downtown Abbey. Just, nobody would know what anybody was talking about. Well, um, Victoria, <laughs> when you're alone and life is getting you lonely, you can always go downtown Abbey. <laughs> to downtown Abbey. To downtown, downtown Abbey. Uh, I, I, now I, I can't edit it out. <laughs> 
see, I, well, that's, it's funny. So why would you want to edit it out? I, I have something I want to talk about the portrayal of racism in this film, but I don't know if it's too much of a spoiler. We're uh, going to save for later. I think um, if it pertains to specific characters, we are going to go into all of the characters after the spoiler point because we can't okay. really talk about them without delving past that. So uh, you may have to I was it. just, then I would just say I was surprised at, uh, the ultimate use of racism by the characters in this film in a way that didn't have the kind of teeth I was expecting hmm. when I first watched it. And I will I will elaborate on that later. <laughs> um, we're getting pretty close as it is, folks. Uh, ultimately, there's only so much we can tell you about a deeply intricate series of interactions without kind of infringing upon that territory. And also, we need the freedom to be able to talk about who everyone really is. Um, before we get to the spoiler section, then I just have one thing that I would really like to say, which is um, just to continue on what you're saying about the train itself as a, as a character and the mm -hmm. setting. And that is that the framing of this all taking place on this train gives it a sense of claustrophobia for a start because everything is very enclosed. Mm -hmm. The Sydney Lumet one was also very cramped, but it always felt like I'd be banging my knees against the edges of tables in that one. But also the way things are laid out means that people are obliged to behave in a certain way just to be able to get around. And that is kind of an echo of this structural this is the way things are set up and this is why they play mm. out the way they do, which is the, one of the broader themes of the film. And there's a, It's a giant bottle episode because everyone's absolutely. stuck. But, but there's, there's things like, because of the way you have, like in the sleeping compartment, all of the rooms are on one side of the, the train and then you have this really narrow corridor that goes the full length of the coaches that have sleeping compartments in them. And that means that everybody moving around this train has to be polite to each other you have to be able to give way to the person who's trying to get past you because otherwise it would just bottleneck and nobody would get anywhere mm -hmm. so um, there's sort of already this obligatory um, social nicety that has to go on just in order for people to be able to get around and there's a couple of moments um, specifically surrounding the uh, initial stages of the investigation of the murder where it is necessary for the camera to pull up into a god view mm -hmm. and give you this top-down look at the scene because otherwise you wouldn't be able to see anything because you're too close to it and yep. again this fits in with the overall theming. Which uh, actually leads me to um, to just mention a couple of technical things before we reach this break point. Uh, oh, I was going to bring this up too. I have so much to talk about on the production. On the production. <laughs> well, that stuff we can talk about. So yeah, we, yeah. Can, we can stretch this out a little further. Do, uh, did you see the thing about how they use the screens to give... Yes. Yeah. Okay. Do you oh want to describe goodness. that? Because I've yammered, so go. So the the... One of the things that I think is brilliant about the way that they shot this is almost all of the scenes inside the train cars are done in camera. Those are not green screens outside the windows showing the, the landscape passing. They recorded 
a train trip in, I think it was Australia, for like a full 24 hours, both left and right side, and they digitally stitched it all together, and they surrounded the train car set with LED screens that they played that on that they could manipulate where in the trip it was so they could have more or less snow depending on what the scene is. And it is imperceptible uh, to just watching it. They even showed in one of the makings of featurettes, they had a whole section where they showed here is a, a shot of a man in a train car on a real train going past some some scenery and then here is a shot of the same man in the same train car using the technique of rocking the train car back and forth a little bit to simulate that general rocking motion and having the led screens showing the outside and you cannot tell the difference like that was how they sold it to the studio even it was so cool looking into that. It's um, a similar way to the uh, the backgrounds of the Mandalorian. They've been employing these massive screens so that rather than immersing, well, just throwing green behind your actors and saying, right, that back there, that is a big, like just the Lars von Trier way of doing it. That is an arena of terracotta vaginas designed and built by bug people. You're just going to have to imagine it. Now walk forward. Instead of that green screen and forcing the actor to imagine where they are, they, they effectively immerse the actors in the actual landscapes without having to go to Tunisia. Mm, yeah, which A, it gives them more control. And, and as you say, Victoria, they, they compared the, the two side by side, the person on the real train and the person in the, in the set. And part of that was that initially they'd planned to actually film on a train, but then very quickly worked out that that's not going to work because you've got no control yeah. over the sway or the, the braking or anything like that. Or sound levels. Or sa- just yeah, like absolutely. if it's just, you're just walking along and it's just like, everyone's speaking is going to be unintelligible. Yeah, so being able to do it this way, A, gives them much more control in, in how they can film, but B, and I think this folds in with what, Branagh wanted to bring to his cast, which is much more of a theatrical feel about the way he films. Now, I don't know whether this is something that he applies to most of his movies or whether he was just unusually able to do it with this one. But um, one of the things that somebody pointed out, I can't remember who it was in the interviews, was that even on the days when they were doing scenes where uh, Poirot, it was like, you know, when they do the shot reverse shot and in, in cinema, a lot of the time they'll film you and and all your camera shots. And then the person that you're acting opposite, they'll do theirs on another day. So they don't have to be there necessarily together to get all of that footage. Mm. But they said that Branagh was always there when it was uh, Poirot acting opposite somebody else so that he could constantly give them the feed lines properly and, and a real sense that they were having real conversations and everything that he did seemed geared towards wanting to make the cast feel like they were there and playing this out in real time. And the camera actually helps a lot with making this feel like a play. That was one of the things that I wrote down in my notes yesterday watching this for the fourth or fifth time and just kind of reflecting on there are extremely long takes in this film Mm. uh him actually coming onto the train and at the end leaving it is just a long take of him walking on interacting with a 
a whole host of characters, almost introducing all of the almost all of the characters that we're going to get to know. And then uh, we kind of go with him into the train in this very long, unbroken take. And then at the end, they kind of reverse it to to have us exit the train with him having like we now have gotten that story. And there are so many conversations and uh, scenes that are just one or two takes that uh, you you feel like you're watching actors like on a on a stage performance. Yeah, absolutely. And Agatha Christie wrote a lot for the stage as well, so it does kind of give you that feel for her oeuvre generally. The cinematography yeah. was by uh, someone named Harris Zamba Lucas, and. That final shot that you just mentioned, the just the oh. pulling through the whole train, is one of my favourite in cinema. So, if nothing else, this film purely existing for that final shot is worth it. It is a, a magnificent draw, like feat of drawing through not only space, but it draws through this sea of emotion and people that we are leaving behind as Hercule steps out into the snow and then the camera comes with him and and moves around, staying in shot, shot and focus. He's given a message, you are needed in the next film. It's called Death on the Nile. (laughs) And he's like, (laughs) ah, okay, off we go. The camera then starts pulling out as the, the, this astonishing sunset in the background. And it's just, it is magic in every possible sense. In the history of cinema, there have been some of its finest moments have been for how long a director can keep the camera rolling and at the same time bring us somewhere. And there have been plenty that tell us about a place, but this is one that tells us about not just a place, but the people in it and their resolution. There's a couple of those in Boogie Nights as well, which make it really high on my list too. They get to do a lot of little tricks like that throughout. It's one of the benefits of having this not be on an actual train. Since it is a set, since they built all of these things, they can remove the top to do those point of view, like God shots, like you mentioned earlier, following and tracking people through multiple train cars Mm. from above. They get to do these long, broad, uh, like long shots on a crane that, that just shows you the majesty of the landscape and just the size of the train and all the warm colors of the sunset or sunrise, depending on the scene. And the number of panning shots from outside the train following people through windows is incredible, honestly. This is one of the most visually beautiful films I can think of. If you have any interest in studying the actual like craft of filmmaking, just sitting there and recognizing how long the takes are, how they pulled some of these things off, and what they're trying to say with the camera movement and the camera positioning is textbook. Like I, I could teach a class mm. using this movie as like a focal point of it. One final technical note uh, before we move on to the the thick and murky plot. Uh, Patrick Doyle's music. This film, watching it again today, made me realize how much I adore Patrick Doyle's work and have done for years. How to Train Your Dragon, Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, Thor, 
this Scotsman can reduce me to tears in moments. And like I said, that tone that goes from sprightly to heartbreaking in this film is assisted every step of the way by Patrick Doyle, who has this masterful command of the orchestra in a way that he knows what to bring in in order to make the moment work. This feels like I'm just describing what a composer does, but it's extremely accomplished in this film. There's a subtlety to it as well, which will take you unawares uh, many times, especially as they're delving into so many different people's pasts. It feels like it could become too convoluted, too intricate, but there's a, a through line that the score will carry you along with. It's just, it's, again, absolutely marvellous. So you said the cinematographer's name was Harris something? Yeah, Harris Zambalukas. So that's, uh, maybe it's a little Easter egg, because the name of the person that they bumped from the train for Poirot to get the, the seat was Harris, <laughs> Mr. Harris. Uh, I, I had that written, I'm like, I, I was like, oh, the greatest mystery, who is Mr. Harris who didn't get to go on his train? Um, the secret was, wonder- he was there all along, sitting on a camera rig. <laughs> He was see. He was going to have a nice vacation on this train, but then a whole mystery broke out, and he had to record it. But Poirot never turned around and went. We have found our key witness. The cinematographer sees everything. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, the circumstances of the murder, and then we are going to have this break point. Johnny Depp sits down in front of uh, Hercule Poirot, says, "Would you like to try uh, some of my dessert?" and has an extremely decadent, uh, like, truffle-trifle thingy with gold on the top, and uh, Poirot being a fiend for cakes, uh, but somewhat uneasy of this man, um, tucks into the thing, eats the little bit of gold on top, and uh, Johnny Depp's character, whose name is Ratchet, uh, expresses that he is worried and afraid for his safety. Uh, He's been uh, dealing moody art on the side, and uh, he feels like certain people are are going to be uh, coming for him, and he wants Poro to be his bodyguard, or...? Kind of, yeah. He wants him to, not necessarily physical protection, but to keep an eye out for suspicious types who might sneak up on him. As a deterrent, because if you've got the world's greatest detective, which, you know, he knows who he is, and it's not clear that everyone else on the train does know uh, who Poirot is uh, to begin with, but um, he, he effectively wants to make sure that if Poirot is keeping an eye out, it's possible he won't be murdered. And uh, Poirot effectively says, uh, nah, man, you're a scumbag. <laughs> and uh, uh, Johnny Depp says, uh, that's, you know, you, you ate my pudding and uh, you, you thus owe me. And uh, Poirot says, uh, good day, sir. And uh, I said good day, sir. And leaves. And that night, Johnny Depp is stabbed in his sleeping quarters. And there, I think we're going to have to have our going through a tunnel, as it were, moment. Because the uh, the Orient Express then has to stop. There is an avalanche, and the train is detained, and everyone's stuck there while Poirot works out who could possibly have stabbed Johnny Depp.
from this point onwards, everything is known. Uh, if you, for some reason, have not yet seen the film or read the book or even read the synopsis, I will briefly synopsize. Ratchet is not who he says he is. His name is Cassetti. He is a mobster. Um, one thing we mentioned uh, while we were watching it, Sharon and I, is um, neither of us have a particular interest in mobster or gangster type movies uh, because the answer to most of the questions as to why murders take place in those is money in almost every case. Uh, potentially sometimes it could be uh, reprisal for the murder of someone which will boil down to money. Or, you know, well, I offered him a job and he said no, so I killed him, which comes down to money, which is dull. Uh, there are very few really fascinating mysteries which boil down to money. I think Knives Out is a really good example of one which it does boil down to money, but there's such intricacy involved. It boils and down a lot of to money, but there's so much of it that's folded in with filial connections and the severing thereof. Yeah. Okay. So there's a lot of very personal stuff going on yeah. as well. And that's that's where the thick of mysteries can sometimes really bear rich fruit. And uh, Cassetti uh, as a mobster... <sighs> It's not gone into in ridiculous detail, but uh, he, as it turns out, uh, abducted a tiny child named Daisy Armstrong uh, and ransomed her to her parents. Her parents, uh, John and Sonia, paid the ransom and Daisy wound up dead. The discovery of her uh, absolutely destroyed the family. Uh, Sonia miscarried the child she was having and died, and John uh, committed suicide uh, out of grief. Every character that we are about to explore was connected in some way to this family and to little Daisy, and as it turns out, Johnny Depp's character of Ratchet slash Cassetti was killed by all of them, wherein they took turns with one dagger stabbing him for reasons that we'll be going into, but everyone is guilty on the Orient Express is the line that I heard in the song, and it doesn't sum up everything that we're about to say. But Ratchet, as it turns out, is one of the most horrendous creeps who ever existed, and uh, his murder is... Well, it means many things, many positive things, and there's a lot of weight attached to it so it occurred to me when Poirot is talking to Ratchet in the dining car that the reason he doesn't like him and Poirot is very open about that fact he says to him almost I you utterly repulse me je deteste um, almost using those exact words um, but Ratchet is evidence of the unbalanced world. He lives in the domain of organised and categorised unfairness where a group of people keep their fingers on the scales to make sure that things aren't fair for other groups of people. And so that very being offends Poirot on some deep level. Later on in the film, Poirot even says that crime is the anomaly and for a person's entire career to be based around crime, and really entire persona, 
to be based around crime would be almost the embodiment of that anomaly. Mm. Yeah. Although, to be fair, I feel like Perot like trips over a crime every other day just on his way to the market or something. I don't know how much of an anomaly it is, but, um, but yeah, it definitely, and my goodness, Johnny Depp, you know, monster that he is in real life, definitely plays this creep to the nines. Yeah. So unsettling to watch. He really is. There was a a remark that Branner made in the, in the commentary saying that having Johnny Depp play this role was, uh, as powerful it was as it was because he embodies like the look of a movie star and i'm sat there thinking he looks awful like they have deliberately gone out of their way to make him look threatening and unpleasant he looks like a waxwork that's uh, worn and now beginning to melt mm. there's a there's a moment in that production featurette where judy dench dame judy dench says something about uh getting to stab johnny Johnny Depp and just like smiles in a way. <laughs> and it's worth watching for that moment alone because everybody's like, oh yeah, like it was a really real wonder to do this. And she's just like, and then we all get to stab Johnny Depp. And then just this like little smile. And I'm like, all right, Judy Dench. I don't know what you got going on here, but I love it. Okay, so characters in turn. Uh, I'm going to take them in the order that they were arranged on the extras, which is uh, a sort of neat way of, of grouping them together. There are two who are directly connected to Ratchet. Uh, his bondsman, uh, Masterman, played by Derek Jacobi. Masterman, uh, who is uh, kind of a London Cockney-ish... I mean, Jacobi is... Or Jacoby... I've always said Jacobi, uh, is as an incredibly long-trained theatre actor. He played Claudius in Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet and I, Claudius, on TV. Completely different Claudius. Yeah, Derek Jacobi has this... He's got a very human quality about him that could go in either direction. When he plays the master in Doctor Who, he has this kind of black-eyed soullessness about him. But here he comes off as incredibly... I suppose salt of the earth. Mm. That makes sense. Yeah. Doesn't he? He's an actor. The most British man in this movie. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> can we uh, outline why what his reasons were for killing Richard? Oh sure. I mean, is. this all happens in the film as well. But just to just to enlighten everyone, just to sure, sure, sure. make it clear. So so uh, Edward Henry Masterman was uh, Mister. It was Colonel Armstrong's valet. Whenever uh, the whole Daisy abduction and murder occurred and uh, the person who put all of this together that we'll get to in a moment sent him after uh, sending Hector McQueen to kind of endear himself to to kind of uh, to work with Ratchet to to steer Ratchet into the right place to steer him and Yeah. yeah steer him where he needed to be. He served as bondsman to Daisy's father. During World War One, yes, which uh, makes him like the way Samwise Gamgee was portrayed in uh, Lord of the Rings. That's what—that's the dynamic uh, he was going for. Something which doesn't necessarily exist outside of that particular side of British society uh, in that era. Which is possibly why it was just interpreted as Frodo and Sam equals gay. The 
purpose of the role, I suppose, and this is kind of an abbreviation of it completely, there was more to it than this, but it enabled officers to have effectively a butler, a valet, mm. there in the trenches with them. Having somebody to provide that for you is very much, or was very much, a marker of social standing. And I think this is in part how Masterman was able to ingratiate himself mm. so easily with Ratchet, who is, as we find out at the beginning, he's effectively trying to or, or has successfully made the transition between uh, small-time gangster mm. to uh, somewhat dodgy but superficially legit art dealer. Mm. He is trying to remodel himself as somebody who belongs in upper-class society and having uh, having a man who did for him is part of that image. Yeah, he, he was, because uh, Bradshaw was all, a, well, Cassetti was all about image, mm. right? So he wanted to look like an appropriate uh, businessman. He just went from, as you said, the low class crimes to the greatest con, the economy. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, another element of Masterman to recognize is that he is dying of thyroid cancer. <sighs> and part of that, uh, it, you know, Poirot figures it out really quickly because he's like, well, what what valet would say that to the person that is paying them? And he's like, well, I only have months to live is essentially what he comes down to. So I just I just tell it like it is at this point. Um, and he, he gets to show a little bit of how much he actually detests Ratchet in private that he relates to uh, Poirot. And that speaks to how important this crime was. We're doing a lot on Masterman here, but if they just wanted Ratchet dead and that was all, Masterman's the man to do it. He's close to him, kill him in his sleep, no problem, Ratchet out of the picture. This was an important event for everyone. Yeah, I, there's something to be said about the fact that since they have all 12 of them stab him using the same knife, they technically don't know which one is the one who killed him. It's like a classic uh it, it's the same reason they have multiple people on a firing squad it's so that you can't technically pin the murder on any one person because you don't know who is the one who actually struck the mortal wound yeah that's uh something uh willow noted actually you know since uh i think it was um uh willem defoe's character who went first she said well then he killed him and since it was Willem Dafoe's character who went first, they said, well, he killed him. And we said, ah, you can survive a stab wound. Yeah. So. And uh, and then they said very specifically that two of the wounds were made like deeper and more uh, precisely than others. And we get to see those take place because they're done by the doctor and by the, um, the dancer, the very angry dancer. Because mm. uh, the, the two of them actually... The doctor knows where to stab for the most damage, mm -hmm. essentially. Uh, and then the other one is just so fueled by anger and, and violence that he just put his whole body into it. You could say that either of those wounds were more likely to cause the death. Yeah. Or it's death by a dozen cuts rather than a thousand. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a big part of it as well. The, that ultimately it could be argued that none of them deliver a blow that singly would have been sufficient to kill him. Mm. The, one of the first things that Poirot notes is that there is no huge blood spray. There's no um, like massive loss of blood that would have occurred immediately. 
He says that very specifically in relation to a couple of the cuts to imply that he was already partially bled out by that point, meaning gotcha. that the that the stabbings occurred over a long enough time mm. that he was able to bleed out onto the the bed. Uh, the blood spray thing is, I believe, mainly because he had a blanket over him yeah. and it absorbed a lot of that blood. That makes sense, yeah. Okay. What this is... Uh in terms of balancing is the damage that has been wrought by the death of Daisy and the subsequent tragedy uh, radiating out to affect all 12 and beyond and then crunching back inwards onto Ratchet so that all of this damage comes back towards him. I, I used a phrase when I was last on here for the WandaVision episode that I want to reprise, that the death of a person causes human shrapnel. And in this case, the death of one person reduced 12 others to shrapnel that came back and only made small cuts to Ratchet, to Cassetti, but it was all that was needed to right that wrong in some cosmic way. Yeah, that's... uh the phrase I was thinking. Uh, Hector McQueen, played by Josh Gad. Fantastic, dramatic actor, Josh Gad. You may know him as a lovable snowman. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> lovable question mark, snowman. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, accountant who uh, make, you know, pulls books together that are full of the fudge. He has this kind of shiftiness to him that kind of outstrips all the other characters. You're like, well, it's definitely him when you're watching for the first time. There's no way he doesn't know loads. But he's got this nervous vulnerability to him. And uh, can you uh, il illuminate his connection to Daisy? Sure. Uh, his, his, he is, so McQueen is a lawyer by education, but not by disposition. And his father was a very famous lawyer, McQueen, who was the lawyer on the Cassetti uh, Armstrong case, and was uh, he was actually the DA. He was being pressured by the powers that be to finish to wrap up the case and to pin it on somebody. And he had the best case against the maid. Uh, uh, oh gosh, why, what was it? Suzanne. Suzanne. I was. I kept wanting to say Sonia, and I'm like, no, it's a different person. Suzanne. Uh, who was the, the, the maid for the Armstrongs, uh, who is innocent. He even knew that she was innocent. She gets arrested, kills herself in custody. It's a huge disgrace for him, especially after the information that, that found that Cassetti was behind the murder. And he was basically crushed under the disgrace of that, uh, that trial and no longer was the famous lawyer McQueen. So his son, Hector McQueen, goes on to become Ratchet's secretary and to fill the books with the fudge. That is such a great scene. <laughs> with the, with the, the chocolate, the, the, uh, the, the fudge! And he just like, <laughs> smashes the table and it's so good. Oh my God. Yeah. Because, um, and again, that, that outburst of uh, passion, which we see in Poirot very rarely, just underlines what it is that really gets this man fired up. It's lies. It's covering up th things that should be known. And and McQueen has a very uh, nervous personality and is an alcoholic because of it. He says at one point that the reason that he's not in America anymore is because prohibition didn't sit well with him. Mm -hmm. uh, and most of the 
there are like little clues here and there, like spilled bourbon on, on different elements that uh, points back to him. And he was stealing money from Ratchet, but I mean, I... I can't blame him, my goodness. Mm, yeah, I think it's it's stated at one point that um, part of why he was siphoning Ratchet's money away is because uh, his father was left with a lot of debt. So this is not that he's stealing this money in order to kind of set himself up for life. He's just trying to pay off part of this shrapnel that was left uh, within his father's life. Absolutely. Because he got to see his father be destroyed by this. Mary Debenham, played by Daisy Ridley. And in the uh, extras, she uh, says, you know, there was a lot of auditions with a lot of actresses there. And for some reason, they wanted me. She is nothing if not incredibly modest about who she is. It's like... Do we or do we not want Ray from The Force Awakens in this? This astonishing young actress. Well, she is British. We do do that. Yes. Being self-effacing. <laughs> yeah. This was uh, the, the role played by Vanessa Redgrave back in 1974. But she's portrayed as a modern woman in 1934. She, I suppose, gets defined when uh, Gerhard, uh, this weird... Creep, played by Willem Dafoe, uh, sort of walks past and sort of uh, delivers a very Nazi-flavoured spiel about not liking the mixing of the races and compares it to mixing red and white wine and, uh, you know, how it would basically ruin both. And then she sort of goes, bloop, bloop, I like a nice rosé. This is a young lady who will actually perform cultural faux pas and is kind of fearless about it. Not obnoxious, but in a kind of way where she's like, you know what, what you are saying is genuinely objectionable, which makes us like her more. And she's in a relationship with a black man. Yeah, so that's specifically what's uh, being, being spoken about at that point. It's some... Um, it's a it's a really good way of showing that the world itself is changing around them mm. and that cl- lines of class and race are being breached all the time and that is the way we're moving into the future and that Mary effectively represents the next generation who are going to be better although you know that that feels like a very right now thing as opposed to a 1934 thing well these things it would appear take rather longer than we would like well i mean 1934 (laughs) i mean i think up to the point where i was still a kid in the 80s they were putting fucking gollywogs on jam in the uk but there's there's a couple of of elements of that that come into poirot's interrogation of mary later on um, in that she is very reluctant to reveal her relationship with the Doctor. And obviously her reason for being reluctant about it is that they are all supposed to be pretending that they don't know each other. Yeah. Um, but uh, what Poirot picks up on is the fact that they are in a, a relationship between people of two different ethnicities and that at the moment, in America specifically, that was illegal. I, can't remember off the top of my head the word. Is it miscegenation or something like that? Uh, racism. Utter racism. Oh, well, yes. <laughs> yes, indeed. The word you were so blushingly groping for yes. is institutionalised utter racism. Yeah, but the, there was a specific law that they had that prevented that. And he's sort of saying to her, we're not in America. You don't have to worry about that. Yeah, yeah. I love that scene in particular because of all of the characters he interviews. She calls him out on it, that he puts them in positions where they are unbalanced when he interviews them. They they all end up in like uh, different 
positions on the train to during their interviews, all of the characters. But for her, she takes her outside where it's very cold. And she, in turn, is far colder than any of the snow in that scene. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think I always appreciated the kind of reflection of that because most of the coloration, most of the camera work is very warm in its color. Even that scene, it's like weirdly warm in the way that it is but the coldest thing in that scene is mary yeah yeah she's lit to be so very very pale and frosty to him she never touches the coffee that he's given her to keep her warm mm. it's it's just got this rim of ice around it the whole conversation um and that just just a quick bit about the fact that they are sat in this avalanche there's a wide shot when that first happens i don't think you actually see the snow impact on the uh, on the engine do you um they they like the train rocks while and it's all from inside and then it pans back and you see the the carriages are all kind of sat along the viaduct you, we'll you, leave it to you the blockbusters to do that well yeah well you get an outside shot of the snow coming down but just as it impacts it mm. goes back the camera goes back inside to see everybody's yeah. reaction yeah. but i loved the way that that shot if effectively gives you a a tone for how the film progresses because you've got this very precarious, almost allegorical balance of the characters uh, on the viaduct. They are very, very lucky that the whole train didn't go falling down the mountain. It sat in such a way that if the snow had hit just a little bit further back, if it had displaced two carriages instead of just the engine, then the weight of it would potentially have taken them all down the mountainside. And that's what this plan was. It was something that was very, very precarious and could very easily have, have taken them all over the edge. Mary's relationship with um, Daisy is that she's... Uh, sorry, it's difficult because we've got Daisy Ridley and, and the child Daisy. Uh, she was the governess, correct? Yes. The, yes. Uh, um, the tutor at, from from home, so she was very close to uh, Daisy. And there's a incredibly brittle hurt in Ridley's eyes as she performs that particular side of things later on. Mm. She's also developed uh, a relationship with the Doctor. Mm -hmm. He has his own connection to the family, but obviously the fact that they met after the tragedy and, and developed their relationship then means that there's an element of their personal connections being intensified and magnified. And that is notable in the people who are here as part of couples or groups. Because some of them are here alone and they're links to the family are more singular and some of them are here because they are more involved on multiple levels. Mm. Pilar Estrovidas, played by Penelope Cruz, who actually switched out for the character of Greta Olsen. She was, this is a character from another novel entirely, but they figured they'd, they'd mix things up a little by making her... She um, was Daisy's she was the, nurse. Yeah, she Daisy's, Daisy's nurse, nurse yeah. yeah. She was in the room when Cassetti mm. kidnapped Daisy... And she mentions, you know, I was surprised once uh, while I was sleeping, and thus I find it very, very difficult to sleep, which the, there's a haunted air to her, because she, possibly more than anyone else on that train, feels like she could have been, done something being more immediately there. She blames herself. She yeah. blames herself entirely for it, and that's why she 
learned how to fight. That's why she became this missionary. That's why she... She is ostensibly paying a penance. Yeah, she tried to find a higher power to dedicate herself to because she feels like she had so profoundly failed in her duties on you know this world, so to speak. The doctor I keep mentioning that uh, Mary Debenham is in a relationship with is Dr. Arbuthnot, uh, played by Leslie Odom Jr. He was a medical student who fought alongside Colonel Armstrong in the war and whose potential was recognised and then funded by uh, Colonel Armstrong and the Armstrong family. And that's his connection to them. He has this great debt of gratitude to the Armstrongs for giving him an opportunity that he wouldn't otherwise have had. And he's one of the characters who um, I said earlier on about where there is a a transition of social structure that for the time frame wouldn't have been expected because Dr. Arbuthnot is black. It is commented on that and yet he has managed to become a medical doctor. And the reason for that is that he points out that there's a university that allows one black student per cohort. And in 1924, he was lucky enough to be that one black student. And that lucky enough, he was that one black student because Colonel Armstrong vouched for him and funded it. Yes, exactly. And uh, and so he's then, again, as I said, for, for Mary, post-tragedy, he's met her and developed this relationship with her and is, is involved in this situation on multiple levels. Oh, my God. Leslie Odom Jr. played Aaron Burr, sir, in... <gasps> the 2020 version of Hamilton that came on Disney Plus so that is I thought he looked familiar. Uh, yeah. So many of these uh actors and that were also stage performers yeah. like uh, as I'm going through and looking at them. Actually hang on sorry I'm getting I'm getting something through the yep yep no sorry I can detect the tweets I can't believe you didn't mention Poirot's mustache. Poirot has a magnificent mustache. It's a double mustache. It's great. And yeah. that's those tweets. You don't need to send them. <laughs> he, he, he sleeps with an adorable mustache guard. Like how most people sleep with like covering over their eyes to sleep better. He has one over his mustache. It's adorable. It has a little like fabric mustache on it. It's great. I'm kidding, folks. Uh, sometimes it does feel deflating when you like put a lot of work into a podcast. And the first thing that comes back is, I oh, didn't mention this. So mustache. I fell off the mountain ledge, but luckily, my fall was broken by a wolf. The wolf attacked me, but fortunately, I had a pistol hidden in my moustache. It's actually, it was something that was uh, written by Christie to allow people to underestimate him. She uh, remembered a uh, shadow bank of tourists from Belgium turning up in Torquay, where she, uh, you know, grew up. When I pay for a view, I expect something more interesting than that. That is Torquay, madam. No, it's not good enough. <laughs> well, may I ask what you were expecting to see out of a Torquay hotel bedroom window? <laughs> Sydney Opera House, perhaps? The hanging gardens of Babylon? Herds of wildebeest sweeping majestically? <laughs> I expect to be able to see the sea. You can see the sea. It's over there between the land and the sky. <laughs> and uh, she thought, well, no one suspects 
the Belgian tourist with the incre- you know incredible facial hair, and uh, it, there, there, there's a slight semi absurdity about it, especially as they've it is a plurality of facial hair uh, as it appears in this movie. It allows people to um, drop their guard. Mm. Which he plays on. He does that on purpose. It's not just the moustache. There's other things about him that he will uh, emphasise. He will underplay his ability to speak English or understand whatever language people are speaking so that they may slip and maybe be a little bit more free in front of him than they would otherwise. Mm. He, he walks with a cane so that people can underestimate him physically as well. Mm. You see people refer to him as French and then he corrects them and tells them uh, that he's Belgian. And then they say French again. Uh, Johnny Depp in this specifically referred to him as Hercules and he definitely said, my name is Hercule, mm-hmm. uh, in, in a way that um, you have to go out of your way to, to keep getting it wrong at that point. Yeah. And that is straight up a way of testing people because his entire thing is built on noticing the details that other people don't notice. If someone calls him French and he corrects them, and then they call him French again, he instantly knows that person does not pay attention to details. Oh my goodness, you've just thrown down the gauntlet. Now every, we're going to get tweets from everyone who notices details we don't notice. We <laughs> notice the details that you did not mention. Ultimately, we only have a couple of hours and we can't literally voice everything in this. But um, Speaking of the cane, actually, I did note down whether uh, this was potentially Poirot's um, object. Remember when we were talking about the, the objects that people have for the oh, for Guillermo del Toro yeah. movies? It's always there with him, and it's a very useful tool. He uses it to, um, obviously, when he needs to kind of pick things up that he can't touch because... I don't know. Were they looking at fingerprints at this point? Well, he uses it to to open up the door into mm. Ratchet's compartment. He yeah, uses it to absolutely. shoot the flower up to to uh, into the doctor's face whenever they're confronted at the very end. I believe um, um, forensics themselves were created uh, in 1799 by Johnny Depp in Sleepy <laughs> in Sleepy Hollow, if you recall the historical documents. Uh, yes. Okay. Oh, that was a good episode. Yeah. <laughs> There's a, a a little extra that they um they, they give us on Poirot, which is him. Uh, he refers to a photograph of the, the woman that he loved and lost, and it gives us this yearning, this more of a sense that he's um, walking away from and walking towards something at the same time that... But the, there's a certain futility in it that the actual piece he's looking for is something that cannot be found mm, yeah. because she is not the around. The is imbalanced because she's not here and that can't be solved. A romance never goes unpunished is what he says. Mm. <laughs> Mirov, played by uh, Queen Dench, uh, who has been nominated over and over again along with... Um, uh, Dame Helen Mirren because once you become a dame if you're still acting you basically get whatever you do that year is going to get into best actress or best support actress um, <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe she didn't win it for cats I mean <laughs> <laughs> 
I truly believed she was a cat. No, she is a, a treasure, and and um, and we we love her. Um, but uh, yeah, she plays here uh, uh, the role of an uh, uh, the always dissatisfied ancient princess, and just the 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 grouping of words "ancient princess" made me go, "Ooh, I want to write a whole book about that." Just. There's something about that because one just assumes that princesses only live to a certain, uh, you know, age and then suddenly become married off and thus become queens. There's a whole bunch of princesses that just remain princesses, mm -hmm. which gives us this. She seems kind of bitter and, and unpleasant, and everything's always slightly wrong. There's a point where the uh, um, that the, the guy who owns the train, I believe, or or, or the conductor, is um, trying to talk her down from hysterics or, or, or like grumpy hysterics uh, after the uh, the avalanche. And you know, he says, you know, why are you blaming me for the weather? And she says, because you're here. <laughs> that's Book. Yeah. Book is the Book. one who's saying yes, that. That's and the she one. goes, Because wow. you're here. And it's because. just so good. But she's, as well as obviously well, her connection to uh, Daisy Armstrong's murder being a big thing that offsets her world and makes yeah. her feel unsafe. She is Daisy's godmother. Yeah. She's, uh, and in particular, she is a very close friend of. Daisy's grandmother, who is the stage actress or retired stage actress and singer who went by the stage name Linda Ardern. Oh, Linda Arden, sorry. Uh, but also, she is a Russian princess and it's the mid 30s. So we're Her talking like Anastasia. Dynasty has been thrown off. Yeah. Thanks, Rasputin. <laughs> <laughs> Ruiner of all things. Hildegard Schmidt, played by Olivia Colman, is is her the female equivalent of a batsman or a translator. She's her uh, female secretary. valet, secretary, yeah, PA, assistant, yeah. gopher, all kinds of things. Mm. Yeah. Uh, what was her relationship with uh, Daisy? Uh, she was the cook for the Armstrong family. Mm -hmm. Is uh, that is later revealed? So effectively, she's moonlighting as this, um, or she's she's in disguise as the uh, yeah. PA. Well, it was more, in the beginning, we know that she has the eyes of a chef because she orders a very specific meal for uh, oh, Natalia. Yes, of course. And um, it, it, the implication is that after the tragedy with the Armstrongs, uh, Natalia gave her the job of her maid mm. because she was out of a job because the family that she was the cook for had been destroyed. And in that case, then, a Russian princess who'd lost her entire um, family and, mm. and position in life would probably have some degree of sympathy for her. And they all knew each other. Like, as we're getting through this, they all do know each other. And they all, there are moments of them all helping and supporting each other even before it is revealed that they all know each other. And certainly even before that, it is sort of fascinating to see that that I mentioned this before, and I'm gonna I'm gonna throw it in now because it's been said a couple of times. The racism that people show that that it really comes up at three different points. Uh, what is it? Hardman has a whole screed that's pretty racist, but he's using it as cover because yeah. he's not who he says he is. 
uh, McQueen. I don't know what because like, what he says. I, I I knew a guy who was a kraut, and it's like, oh, so some of the racism's real. But then, then he oh. refers to himself as half heap, so he's kind of. I'm racist to everyone. It, it peppers his <laughs> his um, way of looking at the world. Which brings me back to our early 2016 episode on the flight of dragons, where Victoria said, "But and I'm just like racism." <laughs> <laughs> Continue. Sorry. It's it's using a lot of the language of the 30s, but again, it doesn't quite have the teeth and mm. even though uh mcqueen has like he says something it's pretty racist about one of the other characters that's even shown to be kind of just to throw poirot off mm. yeah because they're playing they're playing each other against each other with the intent of creating chaos and confusion that poirot can't like shouldn't be able to figure out what is really going on mm. and the only other time that like really racist things are commented on is when book says that you need to figure this out because I don't want to have to deal with this. But also if you don't, then the police are just going to blame it on one of these two people because of their race. Yeah. And I love that book is entirely self-serving, but also makes a good point. Mm. Well, that, that self-serving element is highlighted quite um, I mean, it's it's not amusingly exactly because of the moment, but Book's reasons for being freaked out about the murder are that he's going to have to deal with it. And then Poirot oh. just very quietly goes, and a man is dead. <laughs> oh, yes, yes that too. <laughs> I, yeah. I love how he is personified. Anyway, I just yeah. but I wanted to mention that. Yeah, you're that, absolutely right. That that kind of interplay of of discrimination that goes on back and forth is part of setting up a a web of suspicion that is frustratingly plausible and effectively means that Poirot is surrounded by the truth to such an extent that he can't see it because he stood in the middle of it. Yeah, and they all know each other. They all support each other. That shot at the end with all of them watching the family video uh, in flashback, all of those comments about race and and things like that it is entirely superficial to throw to to add chaos to throw poirot off Mm. it's not that's what i was meaning before when i said that it plays with the racism of the time but it doesn't have the teeth i expected it to in the end there's actually that the subtext is that they didn't expect Poirot to be on the train when they pull, pulled this off. It, it it throws a massive spanner in the works, but they're there and Ratchet's there. They won't get another chance at this. They have to do it, even if it does mean the whole thing is uncovered. And they can't even talk about it because just... Two characters together talking in a suspicious way is going to be noticed. It all has to be done almost by osmosis. And it's kind of astonishing that it takes the, the, the duration of the film to uncover. They are very careful with how they do this. Yeah. Uh, what Victoria picked up on earlier about the poor guy Harris who gets bumped so that um, Poirot can have a birth... Mm. That you're absolutely right. That does beg the question: Who was Harris? Because they've clearly gone out of their way to ensure that everybody involved in this plot is on the train, and no one else yeah, is. So, yeah. was Harris part of this? And he's just almost been removed. 
or he was just the one person who was originally supposed to be on the train. Because mm. Poirot even says at the end that why are there so many people traveling by train at this time of year? Yeah. yeah. So it's obviously very unusual for there to be many people on there. Imagine the luck, though. Imagine like <laughs> the sod's law of getting all of this together. And it's like, oh, uh, there's one more occupant of this train. Uh, you may know him. Sherlock Holmes. The fuck? <laughs> <laughs> just, Everybody oh. be cool. <laughs> that does add such a great uh on the second viewing when you know what has happened, all of the scenes in the dining car, which mm. kind of serves as their like lounge or study that they use in a lot of like the, the parlor like, scene. The parlor scene, yeah, that's what I was trying to remember. Although but, interestingly, the actual parlor scene takes place in the tunnel. In the siding. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But yeah. the whenever you're first watching this, you see them all eyeing each other up in this tense way, like, oh, any of us can be the killer. And then after you know what's what's really happening and you watch it again, you see those scenes and they're trying to be like, how the hell are we going to get away with this, with this guy <laughs> on the train? And it's they're exchanging these looks as co-conspirators and it works just as well. It is it is amazing the kind of, of subtext that is going on there that is playing with your expectations on what you know from pr- past viewings. It is so cool. This is why I think just referring to that as a twist is such a, a limitation of the narrative turn mm. that this it adds entails. layers that you can pick apart afterwards. Maybe just the word twist has been devalued mm. over the years by, mm. in, by so many like things that aren't actually twists. They're just revealing things to you that you di- couldn't possibly have known before. We, mm. I'll just briefly talk about um, 90s thrillers. We watched Copycat the other day. The amount of post- uh, Silence of the Lambs, like early 90s to mid 90s thrillers that were all just trying to be Thomas Harris. And then after Seven, the amount of late 90s thrillers that were all just trying to be Seven. It's exhausting to watch them because you, you watch them sort of chasing their own tails and they want to be as impactful as Silence of the Lambs, but they don't have that much to go on and in the end the reveal of the killer is like the guy who was mopping the floor earlier on but is played by a higher profile actor than you would get on to mop the floor and the fact that they usually in the 90s tended to focus on serial killers and in in the case of copycat it was like wow look at ted bundy wow look at the boston strangler all of these fascinating men is so exhausting to watch and it's not at all like this because it's about hurting and torturing people uh, women as a people it's women it's always women and, and even they even point out in copycat it's always white guys it's always white guys who look a bit like this and how unassuming can you be hey you're in and if the if the answer is money i'm bored if the answer is cruelty i'm not only bored i just don't want to be there and, and if the answer is vaguely veiled transphobia, I'm angry. Have you seen Copycat? No, but a lot of the other movies of that time really play in that space. I mean, Silence of the Lambs. Yeah. It's like, well, At the beginning, Sigourney that, but... Weaver goes into a bathroom and there is uh, the next, in the cubicle next to her, the lady takes off her high-heeled shoes. And then it turns out to be Harry Connick Jr. who disguised himself as a lady to, to attack women in bathrooms. Yeah, and I just on. slow fucking 
clapped. Technically, More. he just disguises his lower calves as, as a lady, but it's just It's one of those on. films where all the cops have to be dumb as shit yeah. all the They're time. They're just running in circles until the murderer trips himself up. I hate that shit so much because there have been more American senators that have attacked people and sexually assaulted them in bathrooms in the last five years than there have been yeah. like this kind of attack in yeah. the history of yeah. mankind. It's so upsetting. But th- but that's the thing, ultimately. the It's a serial killer. He's killing women in this exotic way. And it turned out to be this guy is the opposite of this film because it's... There's almost no craft to it. Such a far cry from what Agatha Christie did. And with Seven, they're also preaching about the sins of the world. And so every fucking thing that followed Seven was just yakking, yak, 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 we live in a society. (laughs) (sighs) Bored, tired. But to be fair, we do live in a society. Well, we do live in a society. Anyway, I I just wanted to delineate a difference there between what's being done here in what I would consider to be not only a classy way, but one of the most humanistic of murder mysteries. Biniamino Marquez, played by Manuel Garcia Rulfo, who I think is probably the guy who has the most it's definitely not me look on his face. <laughs> he's the first suspect because yeah. he's the well, not, not proper suspect, but he's the person that uh, Book first says they'll yeah. probably pin it on him because he's Hispanic. Yeah, and uh, uh, Hector, uh, Josh Gad says, well, you know, Hispanic people have less of a problem killing. And it's like, do they? <laughs> Which is immediately after he's like, well, I don't hold anybody's race against them. He's like, well, well oh, it depends on the race. So, yeah, you do. But again, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's all it's fake racism. Problems. But they can yeah, blend in yeah. in 30s culture because everyone was racist as fuck. Indeed. But the, uh, yeah, so his connection to the family is that he was the Armstrong's chauffeur and also uh, Colonel Armstrong loaned him money to start his own car sales business. Mm. So again, he has a, a, a connection of gratitude to the family. There's Countess Andrea and I, played by Lucy Boynton, who um, we talked about her in Sing Street. Wonderful, talented young actress, and she's got this... <sighs> I've just put her as a turbulent sleeper. She talks about Barbital. Barbital. I drink... Barbital oceans of it. She's got this she's soaked in this sadness. She has the hardest job of all of them, hiding how sad she is. And she it's just kind of heartbreaking. She's got the like she is the model of success in society and yet she's kind of stuck in the back sleeper car in this kind of like this wilting hothouse flower, but imbibing drugs to stave away her fears and when Poirot asks what she's afraid of she replies everything and her connection is she's Daisy's aunt yeah yeah um, so she's the the sister of uh, Sonia who was the the mother who then had the miscarriage and yeah. and died so she's got this she's lost and lost and and has then seen other members of her family fall apart because of the knock-on effect of what's happened here um as you say she's got this image of 
success. She's a, uh, a dancer herself in the in the chorus, but her husband's this incredibly successful ballet dancer. She's married very wealthy. Obviously, her family was very wealthy to begin with. And yet there's this underpinning tragedy that just isn't going to go away. And I, I'm not sure how they frame it in the film. I can't quite remember the... Uh, the staging of that scene but in the book she's the only person who doesn't stab Ratchet Johnny Depp yeah and and ultimately she's the one who is most prominently other people are acting on her behalf because they've seen her fall apart yeah and they're afraid that just it's going to claim more lives yeah. because it's this, it's a rippling tragedy that just keeps taking and taking mm. And uh, the the count, her her husband is a very violent person, and he is shown to do a lot of that violence on her behalf to protect her to as like an extension of her in an interesting way because he's the one who does the stabbing kind of on her behalf. Mm. Yeah, so that he maybe stabs that's him twice his, as hard. Yeah, that's yeah. why his stab is, is uh, twice as hard, and and ultimately he almost has the least connection to Daisy herself because he's he doesn't have any involvement with the family beyond being married to Helena. But what it's done to Helena has... Has, has wrecked him. Wrecked him. And while he is portrayed as being violent, he gets into a bar fight and, and gets this spectacular, like, Scott Adkins-level kick. He's a dancer, but he's also a martial artist. Um, he's never violent to her. There's never a sense that he is in any way aggressive to her. And she seems, while, you know, desperately sad to cling to him in a way that doesn't necessarily suggest she's afraid of him. He's the only thing she's not afraid yeah. of. Yeah. She, she's afraid of the world and he is there to fight it. Mm-hmm. He is there to be the, the a, a shield between her and the world. Which is an unusual portrayal because ultimately if you're going to show a, a violent man that, that a woman clings to these days in modern fiction it's going to send up warning signals. So to be able to handle that in this film without making it feel uncomfortable is is exceptional and, and, and noteworthy. There's Monsieur Bouc, who we mentioned before, played by Tom Bateman, who's not in on it. Is that correct? He's not, no. Yeah. He's the nephew of the man who owns the train. Yeah, so he's uh, the, the one who meets uh, Poirot at the beginning and sort of points his finger and goes, you, sir, will experience the greatest of all opulence of train. Like, he's just given this incredibly, like I said, like Shakespearean performance. I like how in Much Ado About Nothing, everyone is just fucking like, just, I'm so excited to be here at the beginning. It's just that radiating off him. I love that he is friends with Poirot because mm. he does not care about what Poirot does. Yeah. He's just, I, I don't care. I, I'm here to enjoy life to its fullest and amount to nothing. And he is, I think he's described as like nepotism embodied or something mm. like that. Yes, yeah. I forgot from the list, uh, and you pointed this one out to Victoria, uh, the conductor. Yeah, Pierre Pierre Michel, I think, mm-hmm. uh, played by Marwin Kenzari. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably mispronounced that. He is the conductor on the train, and he's the brother of Suzanne, the maid that the whole killing was pinned on, mm-hmm. and uh, killed herself in the prison cell. So he, being the conductor, they made sure that Ratchet was going to be on the train, wherein he was the conductor, because that would help them mm-hmm. do all of this without. Uh, 
you know, another person getting involved that was watching the sleeping cars. And uh, Willem Dafoe's connection is through uh, Suzanne as well. I don't know if we mentioned this, but he was her her boyfriend. Yes, uh, she she loved him. Uh, he, that's Gerard Hartman, uh, who he. It's amazing because he's the only person who is playing a character and whenever he's found out has another character ready to go (laughs) Pinkerton agent when in reality he's just used to be a cop uh, who was on that case and I this is a really good opportunity for me to to talk about another cinematography thing because he really embodies it one of the elements of the dining car that we see over and over again are shots of these 13 characters through the glass in such a way that they are refracted mm. multiple times. Yeah. You see you see them, uh, it goes directly to something that Poirot says that uh, murder it requires a fracturing of the soul. And the thing that is also related to it is the murder of Daisy has fractured all of these people in their own right. And in the, there's a shot near the end when Poirot finds out that Hardman is not who he says he is and then not who he says he is after that, where he is reflected three times. There are three versions of him in the window you see. And it's also one of the only times, it's one of the only times you get to see Poirot through that glass and he is barely out of like his refraction is barely out of step with itself but that is also when he is at his greatest doubt and frustration with the case Hmm. so he himself is becoming slightly out of step uh because of the uh moral turmoil that he's going through Hmm. and that being able to carry that shot so consistently throughout the entire movie showing all of the characters being fractured who are fractured by the crime. And then at the end, the final long take where he is walking outside the train and we get to see all of the characters once more, they are shot through solid panes of glass, made whole once more by this rebalancing of the scales. (sighs) Which brings us to Caroline Hubbard, played by Michelle Pfeiffer, played wonderfully by Michelle Pfeiffer, she she purports herself as a husband hunter at the beginning, and she's kind of this. Um, you know, she's playing up the "I'm middle aged but I'm glamorous" uh, card at the beginning, and even kind of flirts with Johnny Depp in a way that you know must have just turned her stomach as uh, as the as the character. She flirts with Poirot as well. Yeah, well, using what she can, mm. but she's the one who organizes this entire thing she's effectively the mastermind of 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 what they're going to do but also this comes from observation that everyone has been desperately hurt by this and the pulling together of everyone like if if you're going to point to the the deepest cut then it 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 would be attributed to her and the way that Poirot finds them they're arrayed in a The Last Supper horizontal table mm. in a very dramatic fashion in the uh, uh, tunnel, just sitting there with a revolver, just waiting for him to come and realize that it was all of them. And this presents him with this moral quandary of this was an injustice and I can't not report it and the perpetrators must be brought to justice. Caroline effectively says, if anyone has to swing for this, it's just me. And he 
he lays down the revolver and says, I literally can't walk away from this. You're going to have to kill me to do this. This is the this is his own peculiarities coming to the surface and his inability to deal with this moral imbalance. Simply knowing that everyone is guilty on the Orient Express, which is how the twist was um, revealed to me in the lyrics of a song, cannot prepare you for the depths of feeling that are drawn from these performances and the portrayal of the crime itself. It should be brutal and savage, but it is mournful when we finally get to this moment, and angry and quiet and imbued with a regret that has been brewing beforehand, a pre-regret, not regret for dispatching this monstrous man, but for the shared trauma that must be lived through in order to find something approaching a life beyond this utter tragedy. Tell the police it was me alone. They have a chance now. Helena, I pray, has a chance. They can live, find some joy somewhere. Let it end with me. They're not killers. They're good people. They can be good again. There was right. There was wrong. Now there is you. I cannot judge this. You must decide. You wish to go free without punishment for your crime. Then you must only commit one more. I will not stop you. You can't let them kill you. You give my body to the lake, and you walk away innocent at the station. You must silence me. Book can lie. I cannot. Do it! One of you! No. I already died with Daisy. She puts the gun to her own head. No! Poirot's reliance upon justice that so firmly established earlier in the movie crumbles against this wall of evidential injustice. It suggests that the structure going beyond what we know, what civilization assures us will support us, it puts the onus on the individuals to ascertain morality, and the circumstances are simply too unbalanced for Hercule to decide on any other action but to walk away, which he does at the end. This film is now more relevant than when Agatha Christie wrote it in 1934. It's more relevant than when they filmed it in 1974. It's more relevant than in 2010 when David Suchet played him. It's more relevant than it was in 2017 when this film came out. This principle suggests the most terrifying prospect, which is that our legal systems fail us. Our protectors fail us the very threads that we believe hold civilization together 
are ephemeral, they don't exist, or they are incapable of bringing the clearly guilty on so many levels to what we would look at as justice. Because they are, as Pilar points out, the laws of man, and sometimes the laws of man are not up to dealing with this kind of thing. And I don't think they emphasise it particularly in the film, but again, in the original text, Cassetti was discovered and eventually his trial all fell apart because of corruption and cock-ups and it all went wrong. And so he was never brought to a, any kind of, of justice that way. In the film, it is described that by the time they had figured it out that it was Cassetti, he had already fled the country right. and was beyond their reach because the, the process was so flawed and so slow. Yeah. And obviously and, a part of him becoming ratchet is to change his identity to be able to that much more easily get away with it. Absolutely. And I think that it is important to recognize that there is a 14th character who is tied to the Armstrong murder, and that is Poirot himself. Hmm. He was sent a letter by Colonel Armstrong begging him to come and solve the crime, to find Cassetti, to give him some peace. But by the time the letter arrived to Poirot, he, uh, Armstrong killed himself. And uh, our, our lead detective here had to live with knowing that he could not have made that right. And he had for a long time until he was confronted with these people making it right. His act at the end to lead the police into a different direction, to give them a another story, is to become an accomplice to the other 13. That's his contribution. That's his knife blow. Yeah. And, and he has to live understanding that that structural imbalance that he created, that he took part in now, has created a greater cosmic balance that he's just going to have to find a way to live with. Yeah, yeah. There was a greater alignment that needed to be made, and all he has to do now is allow that alignment to sit. Because he knows, thanks to having done that final trick with the revolver and, and uh, Caroline, Linda, whatever you want to call her, uh, where he did not believe that any of those 13 are killers and she proved him right mm -hmm. because when the when the chips were down when the only thing they had to do to get away with it was to shoot this one man to to kill again she the mastermind of it refused could not do it and could only barely live with herself mm -hmm. given the fact trying to kill herself proved that she was in fact not a killer proving him right making it even more complicated morally for him and uh, Michelle Pfeiffer herself sings the uh, the song from the end of the film it's um, uh, never forget for the film's finale that's the one yeah it's it plays to Patrick Doyle's theme and there's such a the end of this film is astonishingly powerful it throws down a gauntlet for um, mysteries moving forwards in, in terms of just finding out that it was the killer and this is the reason that the butler did it for this. It will always seem like small potatoes to me. Um, Agatha Christie was born in Torquay in England in 1890 and lived to the age of 85. In her life, she wrote 66 mystery novels, some of the greatest of all time. 
And she very deliberately worked without a formula to avoid becoming literally formulaic. Instead, she focused on characters and a compelling story that would grip her readers. The story was always the most important. She was apparently an incredibly good listener. And so she would take things people said and just thread them into her books just to make it feel lived in as a world. And along with Poirot, she created Miss Marple and penned 14 short story collections. And I barely knew anything about her before today. I knew of her, but it just seemed to be from too many generations before me. And when we delved into the extras on this Blu-ray, however, the fondness with which she was spoken of by her, the surviving members of her estate and the people who've worked with her fiction and, and brought it into, in, into, into other milieus. The sparkling character that she seemed to exhibit in herself and her daughter Rosalind, who was her greatest critic and always correctly guessed the murderer. I began to feel this great affection for a writer that I'd never really known before. And it is without any interest in sensationalism that I invoke her 10-day disappearance in 1926. It was in her mid-30s. It was following the revealing by her first husband, Archibald Christie, that he was having an affair. And Agatha was found in a hotel under the surname of the other woman, suffering from memory loss associated with being in a fugue state not emotionally in control of herself and reeling from a nervous breakdown. Following the divorce in 1927, wherein she got full custody of Rosalind, the two travelled together as Agatha convalesced, and in her own words, after illness came sorrow, despair and heartbreak. There is no need to discuss it further. And I will not but it is absolutely worth noting that the next few years were during the golden age of travel and Agatha experienced vivid encounters with far-flung places and people around the globe. She wrote Orient Express in 1934, like I said, and the book and this film exist upon a foundation of pain in the past, an anger and a frustration, a betrayal and a confusion and deep heartbreak. I have 65 other mysteries of hers to get acquainted with, but this may remain the most magnificent. School of Movies is kept alive via Patreon. Our $15 sponsors get credit every episode, so merci Aaron Lecluset, Abel Savard, Alex Atwich, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolfe, Kieran Dachler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Daniel Salguero, Dan Hepner, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Duran Barnett, Finbar Nicole, Frankie Punzi, Greg Downing, James Enright, Jesse Ferguson, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Johan Clayson, Joe G, Kat Esman, Kevin Vehi, Lorraine Chisholm, Mark Lush, 
Mark T. Huey, Matthew A. Siebert, Matthew Webb, Michael Hasko, Sarah Montgomery, Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Toby Jungius, Thomas Painter, Trey Contreras, Ella Valencia Burns. Next week, I shall bring you The War for the Planet of the Apes, and I will be re-releasing the 2014 shows for Rise of the Planet of the Apes et La Planète des Singes, L'Affrontement. Allons-y! Before we go, Victoria, Sharon, is there another? Oh, is there anything else about this film that we haven't mentioned that really does need mentioning for a start? The one little detail that I noticed was Poirot has a Dickens novel with him, which he reads and which he was hoping to make use of his downtime to finish, um, which is A Tale of Two Cities. And that is in itself a story about injustice and social imbalance. Hmm. The only other thing is I want to reiterate how much I one of the reasons why I don't really have a lot of history with mystery is because I find the detective characters to be insufferable know-it-alls. They're they're they are the the Mary Sue, whatever you want to call it, of so many of these stories. I don't like I've never read Sherlock. I've, I've never read any of Agatha Christie's novels. I barely watch mystery movies because usually those characters are just correct and you're just there kind of for the ride but to see Poirot who I had some history with because my parents had watched the show before so I, I knew that he was like who he was and how he was personified to begin with no no I know what is right and I know what is wrong I know how the world works I have a binary understanding of good and evil and then at the end having to confront that having to go through emotionally a change is not something I associate with mystery detective characters. And yeah. I so, so appreciated being able to, to reflect on that. So before we go, uh, Victoria and Sharon, is there another great mystery movie that you'd like to point our listeners towards? Sure. I'll go first. If you, if, if you it. like, uh, I, as I just said, I don't really have much of a history with mystery movies, but there was one that came out fairly recently called Searching. It's a very modern mystery. Uh, John Cho plays David Kim, and his daughter goes missing. The int- the it's a really like tense thriller mystery, but the thing that I think is super fascinating is the entire thing is shown through screens, digital technology. It's it's desktops from computers. It's phones, it's all manner of thing. And it tells this ridiculously gripping, unbelievably compelling narrative. Just witnessing somebody at the very beginning diving back into an old computer, booting up some old computer that clearly hasn't been touched since the person who originally owned it died of cancer is just 
it is heart-wrenching and it's just a mouse clicking on some things being very hesitant to open certain files and it feels so personally relatable in a way that i haven't seen a, a similar kind of investigative piece yeah I, I loved it i think it's fantastic and I really think more people should see it if you haven't. We both heartily agree with Victoria. As far as I can tell, this is one of the only films where computers actually work like computers do. That is Searching 2018. Search it out right now. Sure. I have trawled my memory to come up with ones that we haven't already covered. Um, I mean, the, the ones that were springing to mind for me were like A Few Good Men and Sleepy Hollow, which we've already mentioned. Um, so And Knives Out. And Knives Out, yeah. Uh, so I am going to go with your subtle suggestion and um, point people in the direction of Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Which is a lot more cruel than anything that we've mentioned already. Yes, yeah. It is, but the uh, that for me the appeal in that is more to do with the interplay between the characters. Yeah. Again, most of the the mystery stories that I really enjoy, the mystery is not the main point. It's a, a kind of a secondary thing. But you've got Robert Downey Jr. on fire as uh, the unwitting detective. He's not even a detective. He's playing a detective. He keeps getting truth thrown at him. Yeah, for a role, <laughs> and, and he's studying it. And the whole thing is a BoJack Horseman-level um, condemnation of all kinds of elements of Hollywood. Yeah. Uh, but you've also got Val Kilmer, top form for a later-in-life performance for him. He's just got this... Acerbic, hard-nosed, witty, scathing energy as a gumshoe. It's the world-weariness that he yeah. puts across in that that I appreciated. But it's Michelle Monaghan who is, for me, probably one of the, the, the best elements of it, where she's the one who grew up reading hard-boiled detective novels, so she's the one who's really into this particular case. So, yeah, I'd go with Kiss Kiss Bang Bang as a uh, another... Um, a noirish Hollywood thriller. Oh, I want to say Nice Guys as well on that too. That yeah, that is I definitely was, worth watching. Yeah. Yeah. I was just thinking about Nice Guys. Yeah. That's a great movie. The weird thing is, I know when I was a teenager, I used to be such a fan of noir, and I can't remember any of them. <laughs> the <laughs> only one that's springing to mind is actually uh, a Kenneth Branagh one, Dead Again, hmm. uh, which he did with Emma Thompson, and I haven't seen it in so long that I would actually be a little bit hesitant to recommend it before I see it again. And my one that I'm going to recommend is a gothic romance called Marrowbone, or The Secret of Marrowbone, depending on your region. Technically, while this is a ghost story, it also qualifies as a murder mystery, and things do need to be uncovered but most of all it's just dreadfully underseen and underappreciated needs more eyes on it there is a a rich heartbreaking mystery in there that no one's interested in and i just want to just nudge a few more of you towards it just because the experience is singular and rare and precious and i do definitely recommend marabone Next week, as I said earlier, we will finally, after a seven-year wait between films two and three, be concluding the Planet of the Apes trilogy. Until then, I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And allons-y. Please.
Oh. 